open them to Revelation chapter 10. Tonight we begin our study in this 10th chapter, which is still part of this terrible time of tribulation that will come upon the earth at the second coming of Christ. As Christians, we joyfully anticipate Christ's coming. In Titus chapter 2, verse number 13, Paul called the coming of Christ the blessed hope. And he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to that, aren't we? That's going to be the end of all heartache and sorrows that we experience in this life. It's the end of a body of sin that struggles against sin. It's an end of disappointment that we feel because we're really not as faithful as we want to be. It's an end of our imperfections when we come into the glorious perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, it's really an end of all sin. It's an end of all the consequences of sin. There are many things for us to look forward to in the second coming as well. It's the beginning of our person-to-person, face-to-face adoration of Christ. It's the beginning of eternity where forever and ever we'll be able to worship God. It's an introduction to the other saints who have gone on before us. We'll get to meet people like Abraham and Moses and David, Elijah, Joseph, Mary, John the Baptist, Peter and Paul. It's the resumption of our fellowship with friends and family that we knew on this earth that died in the hope of Jesus Christ and with the promise that we would see them again. For some of you, it means a reunifying with your loved ones like husbands and wives. You'll be able to see them again. And for many more, you'll see mom and dad, brothers and sisters, that all of these people that died in Christ with that hope. Now, some of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, that, that will die before Christ comes again. But for Paul and for every Christian who came after him, we've always lived in this hope that Christ would come in our lifetime. We live with a hope that we'll hear that trumpet sound, Christ will break through the skies, and then the dead in Christ shall rise, we'll be resurrected to be with him, and then those of us that are alive will be transformed, will be changed to go up to be with Christ. We live in the hope of Christ's coming, and we're never going to relinquish that hope. As long as we live upon this earth, when we go to bed at night, when we get up in the morning, that's the thought that's on our mind. Today, tomorrow, might be the time that Jesus comes again. So it is great hope, and it's no wonder that Paul called it the blessed hope. But that's for us who know Christ. We look forward to it because we know him. For those who aren't saved and who don't know him, it's not a day for them to look forward to. When the trumpet sounds and Christ breaks through the skies, there is no hope for unbelievers. It's not a day for them. It's a time to dread the worst of the worst, dread it in the worst of ways. Because when Christ comes, he sets in motion a chain of events that wins back his authority over this world that he's allowed Satan to usurp. And the battle for the world and the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom will be one like no one has ever seen before. Christ will turn Satan against himself. He'll divide Satan's kingdom. Satan will fight against Satan, against his own house. And God will also not only use his divine power to accomplish his purposes, but he will use the forces of hell and forces of evil as well. And we've seen that in the opening of the seven seals. Uh, Christ brings judgment to bear uh, by the elect angels, but then he also brings judgment through evil angels. In the seventh seal, we saw there are seven trumpets sounded by 
the elect angels. And with the sounding of the first four, God's personal power upon the earth is unleashed. There is great, terrible times of disaster that comes upon the earth. But then there came that fifth trumpet, there came the sixth trumpet, and the elect holy angels of God unleashed this horde of demons upon the earth as they afflict men of uh, the earth. Well, after the sounding of the sixth trumpet, there comes an interlude between the sounding of the seventh, sixth and seventh, and this is where we are tonight. Uh, Chapter 10 is an interlude before the next wave of judgment comes, and this is the longest interlude that we find in the book. And you'll notice there is a pattern as we go through Revelation. There's a series of four followed by a series of three, and in the series of three, there's a break between the second and the third. So the pattern here is we saw four seals that were opened. Those were grouped together. Then there were three seals opened and they were grouped together. And between the sixth and the seventh seals, there was that interlude. And if you think back and you remember, that was in chapter 7. And that's where we were introduced to the 144,000 Jews who were called out to be special witnesses for Christ. Also, uh, we were told about the Gentiles that would come to Christ, perhaps even millions of them that will be martyred for the cause of Christ. That was all in chapter 7. When we get a little bit further along and we get into the 16th chapter, we'll come to the seven vile judgments or the seven bowl judgments, and there will be a break there between the sixth and the seventh bowls. And then also, as we see it here in chapter 10, Uh, This interlude, there are four trumpets that sounded, they brought judgment on the earth, and three trumpets sounded, they brought judgment upon men. And then what follows the pattern then is this sounding of the sixth and seventh trumpets and a break between those two. So chapter 10 is that break. That's where we are tonight. And this continues all the way down through chapter 11, verse number 14, before we hear that seventh trumpet sound. So we begin chapter 10 with an interlude. Alfred, you're going to have to leave me alone tonight. Okay. Just, just, you stay still and leave me alone. Let me preach, okay? You do that. So, so we begin this 10th uh, chapter, which is the interlude, and, and it's really an interesting and a controversial one. Tonight I'm going to preach part number one of a sermon called A Big Angel and a Little Book, and we're not going to get very far. We're, we're just going to get to the first verse, really, part of this first verse, and we're going to read the entire chapter, and we're going to talk about this subject. So if you'd stand with me, please. Uh, We'll start in Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse number 1. I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be no there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets 
And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word tonight, we just ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts to understand what you have written here. Lord, may we magnify the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach the sermon tonight. Bless our people who have come to hear. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You really won't have very much to fill out on your lesson sheet tonight because I said I'm just going to be able to cover one point in this four-point message. Now, I said a moment ago that chapter 10 is an interesting one and a controversial one. Some of you have purchased the a little yellow commentary book that we have on Revelation that was written by my father. And we'll give you just a little bit of explanation about that book. My father taught through the book of Revelation several times through his ministry. I'm not, not sure exactly how many times that he did, but in both the uh, regular preaching services and also in Sunday school, he taught the book of Revelation. The little book that we have out there really didn't start out as a book, but what that is is a collection of Sunday school uh, lessons that were written. And then after my father died, there was a, a person in the church who took those and retyped them, compiled them all together into a book. And I'm sorry that if you purchase one of those and you look through it, you, you will find some typing errors in it. You'll find occasionally a sentence that's not complete, and you may find some words that are misspelled. And that's because the book really didn't go through an editing process. The, the person who typed that up just got it all together and then sent it off to one of the churches that was in the area. They printed it up for us and then uh, we purchased those books from them. So I wanted to point this out to you that that little commentary is not a comprehensive commentary on the book. It's intended for Sunday school teachers and for their students. And for that reason, you won't find a lot of information there about controversies that are in the book of Revelation. But rather, what you really have is just an overview of the meaning of the book. And I think for most of you, you would benefit if you got one of those and you followed along with it as we're studying through Revelation. But having said all of that, there are some places in that book where my father and I don't exactly agree. And I very hesitatingly disagree with anything that he has to say, believe me, because uh, my ministry is very, very much a reflection of what my father taught me. My younger years, he taught me and set me off in the right direction, and then through many, many years of study, personal study, I, I've come to uh, many of his same conclusions, and especially when it comes to the area of historical Baptist. We, we do agree on that, I mean, especially when it comes to things like the doctrines of grace. I'm in agreement with him, and what we see today is that many Baptists have abandoned the historical position that Baptists have stood for. Now, the doctrines of grace are, are central to a correct understanding of soteriology. That, 
that word just simply means a study of salvation. And modern Baptists today are really more like Methodists than they are like the old historic Baptists. I happen to believe that the historical position is right. And that may not matter to some people because really what's Bible is what's right, whether it's Baptist or not. But it just so happens that the historical Baptist positions, I think, are Bible and they, and they are correct. But today, uh, we find a different theology among Baptists. Uh, many of the positions that our modern-day Baptists have, have appeared down through the centuries and they were soundly rejected by Christian people, by people who have studied the Bible, by doctors of theology, those who know best. They've soundly rejected many of the things that Baptists are teaching today. But nevertheless, that has become the predominant theology. And I I really do believe that our old historical Baptists were much, much more learned, and they were uh, really much better scholars than their modern-day Baptist counterparts. Now, that whole thing is another subject. So, I'm getting to this. If I disagree with anything that my father uh, had to say about Revelation, it won't be on any major doctrine. And if there's a disagreement, what we have is another opinion. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad opinion. It just means it's another opinion. And there are many good Bible scholars that stand on different sides of this. And uh, you really can't go wrong, I don't think, in in one sense of the word, in accepting what another viewpoint is because there's nothing there that's going to hinder you in salvation or any major Bible doctrine. So you can be in very good company when you take an opposite opinion of one or other thing that we find in the book of Revelation. Well, the beginning of this 10th chapter is one where I very reluctantly disagree with my father. Now, if he's right and I'm wrong, then there's no violence that's done to any believer. As I said, there are good people on both sides of the argument. Now, the disagreement here concerns who is this angel in verse number 1. Now, you might say, well, who cares? We've seen so many angels throughout the book of Revelation. What difference does it make which angel that we're talking about here? And I would tend to disagree with you if we were looking at one holy elect angel versus another holy elect angel. For instance, when we were in chapter 8, we had a lot of problem with the problems with the angel that we saw there that was standing before the altar of incense. And the reason that we had problems with that is because never in the scriptures do we see an angel performing priestly duties. So to see an angel there doing what he did, that throws up red flags, it causes us problems, and people get all upset because they can't understand or can't figure out what that's all about. Well, there, so there's controversies about angels in the Scripture. But here, the controversy is not one angel versus another. The difference is, in the identity of this angel, is, is this a created, holy, elect angel of God? Or is this none other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, that's a very different type of distinction, different type of distinction. And that's the controversy that I want to consider in this message tonight. Who is this angel? Well, point number one in your outline this evening is the appearance of the angel. Who, who is the angel? Now, I haven't yet told you which side that I take and which side my father took. Is it a holy elect angel or is this the Lord Jesus Christ? I take the position that it's a holy elect created angel and he took the position that it is Christ, the eternal Son of God. And again, as I said, there are many 
good people that are on both sides of this. So what we're going to do is examine these arguments on both sides of the question. Now maybe that doesn't interest you. But as I look at the book of Revelation and look into these certain kinds of controversies, these things are fascinating to me because it gives us an opportunity to get deeper into the Word of God. And the the Word of God, the Bible, is a magnificent book. We can study and study and study. We go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, and we simply cannot touch bottom. So we're going to examine this particular controversy. I want to take my father's side first in this message. Next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the other side of it. And before we're through, you you may decide that you're going to go with him instead of me. And that's okay, because I have difficulty deciding too. So tonight, I'm going to present his side. Next week, we look at the other side. So let's begin here. Here the scripture says, I saw another mighty angel. Now that's John who's speaking, of course. And he calls this being that he sees another mighty angel. Now, to some, that sort of ends all the controversy for them because it says an angel here. And he doesn't say that I saw the mighty Christ. He doesn't say I saw the mighty Son of God. He doesn't say I saw the Lamb. He doesn't say that. He says I saw an angel. Is Christ ever called an angel in the Scriptures? Well, I'd refer you to the many discussions that we've had in the Old Testament where we discuss the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus. Most scholars agree with this, that when you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, that what it's really talking about there is an, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, an appearance before he became incarnate in Bethlehem. That's what we call a theophany, or some people call it a Christophany. I happen to believe that these are appearances of Christ, and there are many of these that we do find in the Old Testament. Several of them are found in the book of Genesis. But I want to call to your mind one that's found in the book of Judges. This was before Samson was born, and there was an angel that appeared to him and his wife called an angel of the Lord, and he appears to Samson's mother and father. The angel of the Lord spoke to Manoah, Samson's father, and Manoah asked him a question. He said, what is your name? And here's the angel's response in Judges 13. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Now, curiously, that word secret in in the verse is the same word that's translated as wonderful. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, we sang about that tonight. His name is Wonderful. Well, that's the very same word that we have translated as secret in the book of Judges. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, that secret, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of course, we have no doubt that there... The writer of Isaiah is speaking of Jesus. And then further, after this angel was done speaking to Manoah, Manoah had this reaction. He says, Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. And so you find many of these appearances in the Old Testament where the angel that appears is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't automatically rule out that when it says angel in Revelation 10 verse 1, that it can't be Christ. I mean, that alone is not sufficient for us to rule it out. Well, what about the angel's appearance? Of course, that is central to the argument because this angel has many of the same characteristics as Christ. 
So we're going to look at the description that's given here in verse number 1 and talk about that for just a moment. So first we see that the angel is clothed with a cloud. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. There is no question that clouds are associated with deity and specifically with Christ. In uh, uh, the first chapter of Revelation, verse number 7, there's an unmistakable reference to Christ because as John begins there, he tells us who he's talking about. And in verse number 7 of chapter 1, he says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Now that refers to the second coming. It includes the rapture and all the different events that we've been studying over these past few weeks. And in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is speaking, he talks about coming in the clouds. Then shall appear the the uh, sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There are many references that we find in the New Testament that associate Jesus with clouds. Then also in the Old Testament, clouds are associated with deity. You remember when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, that the Bible says the Lord descended in a thick cloud. Book of Tabernacle, or in the Tabernacle, it tells us there that when uh, the Tabernacle was set up and the glory of the Lord came to fill this place, that the glory of God appeared in a cloud that came and settled down on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Numerous times. When God appeared to Moses and the people, it was accompanied with a cloud. Exodus 16 verse 10 says, And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 24, 16, Exodus 40, 34, Numbers 16, 42, 1 Kings 8, 11, Ezekiel 1, 28. Many, many different references. I could go on and on from both the Old and the New Testaments that talk about deity that speak of Christ in the clouds. You know, I remember one of the things that my father really liked to do was that he liked to look at clouds. He liked the the big, puffy, cumulus clouds. And we, you know, had a lot of those in the summertime in in Kentucky with all the thunderstorms. And uh, we have lots of photo albums at home that are just pictures of clouds. More pictures of clouds than you have pictures of the kids. But I remember when we used to travel by airplane that where he wanted to see was, sit was always next to the window so he could look out and, and look down at the clouds because he loved clouds. And the reason that he did was because he said it always reminded him of the second coming of Christ. You know, that's a wonderful way to live the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, everything around you will remind you of Jesus if you always have Jesus on your mind. If you don't, you look at the clouds and they don't mean anything to you. You don't think about Jesus. You look at the clouds and you see rain. It's what you worry about. It's going to rain. Or you see a cloud that's going to mess up your suntan. But a great way to live the Christian life is to think about these kinds of things. Have Jesus on your mind and see him in the clouds. So this description that we have of the clouds here is a very compelling argument that we should identify the angel here with the Lord Jesus Christ, because clouds are very closely connected with the appearance of Christ and also with the presence of deity. Now, what about the next statement? The next one is, the angel has a bow on his brow. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. 
Now here's another compelling argument for uh, this angel being identified as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's because rainbows are associated with deity. And there is important significance that's placed upon rainbows. Back in chapter 4, we saw a rainbow. The rainbow there was around the throne of God. And John writes this in verses 2 and 3 of that chapter. He says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. I could probably ask the youngest Sunday school student in this building tonight about rainbows, and their mind would immediately go to that story in the Old Testament about Noah and the ark. You know the story, how that God sent the flood upon the world, he destroyed the world with the flood. But then when it was all over, God gave Noah a sign. He gave him the rainbow. He put the rainbow in the clouds, and that was a sign of God's covenant. It wasn't a covenant with angels. It was God's covenant, because God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. So when you see rainbows in the Scripture, they're, they're always associated with God and not with angels. Jesus is seen in the clouds, God is seen in the cloud, and God in a cloud is speaking of judgment. And Jesus comes in clouds of judgment. In the Old Testament, when God appeared in a cloud, that signified judgment through the law. But the rainbow is not God in judgment. A rainbow is God in his mercy. When the storms come and they're violently about us, that means that judgment has fallen. But then the next side is the rainbow, and that's the mercy of God. And that's a great comfort to God's people. That's an indication that the angel here could be Christ. And again, I would have to say that is a compelling one. God is a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy. And Jesus said that when you're like him, you'll be a person of mercy. He said, blessed are the merciful. And we're going to take up that beatitude, blessed are the merciful. David said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so when we look at this from these peripheral symbols that we find in Revelation, we can easily see how that both clouds and rainbows point towards identifying the angel here as Christ. Now, thirdly in the description, the angel shines as the sun. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with the cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, it were, the sun. If we go back to that first chapter in Revelation again, this is part of the initial description that John had of Christ when he first appeared. We're not going to read that entire description, but we go back to chapter 1 and verse number 16, and here John is describing Christ as he stands in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Remember, the candlesticks represent the churches. Verse 16 says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, that's his face, was as the sun shineth in his strength. The glory of God... Shining from the face is another characteristic of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even Moses' face shone. Remember when he was up on the mountain with God, just being in the presence of the glory of God, Moses came down and his face was shining. But there's another remarkable uh, incident in the life of Christ when the glory of God shone from his face. That's when Peter, James, and John were taken up on the mountain with Christ And they were able to see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
That description is given to us in Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Peter spoke about that incident when he was writing his second epistle. I want you to turn over there to 2 Peter for just a moment in chapter 1. And I want you to notice very carefully about how uh, Peter speaks of Christ's transfiguration. And he talks about this in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse number 16. It says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such an one to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And there he's speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you read this entire epistle, you'll find that it's building towards this awful, terrible day of the Lord. And he says this in chapter 3, verse number 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And so the transfiguration of Christ and the manifestation of God's glory there was to teach the disciples about Christ's second coming in power and in glory. And indeed, that was Jesus' intent uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we just read that from Matthew chapter 17 where it happened. And just prior to that, in chapter 16, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we notice there that he said there were some right then who would not die until they had seen Christ in his kingdom. And that was fulfilled in the very next chapter at the transfiguration. They saw Christ in the glory that he would have in his future kingdom. And that was evidenced by his face shining as the sun and then his clothes becoming white as light. So once again, we're looking here at a very compelling argument because this fits in so well to what we're studying in the book of Revelation. The description of the angel here in chapter 10 looks very much like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that even goes without saying uh, or talking about this direct reference that we have in the Old Testament where the prophet called him the Son, the S-U-N of righteousness. That's in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 where it says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arrive with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Now, I would ask you, are you convinced about it yet? You know, I might even change my mind in the next few weeks. But, but we're not through here. Here's another description. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with the cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars like fire. Now, once again, we have to return to the first chapter and the initial description of Christ as John saw him. There it says in verse 15, And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. The symbolism of feet like brass burned in a furnace is one of judgment. That is a picture of judgment. In the tabernacle worship, Moses was told to make a brazen altar and 
that was for the burning of the sacrifice. We discussed altars a couple of times as we've gone through Revelation, and and one of the places was about the altar of incense in, in chapter 8. That was the pattern for the altar of incense that was put into the tabernacle. But there's another altar, and that's the brazen altar. It's different because that's where the sacrifice was, was made, and then that sacrifice was burned. And what that is is a picture of Jesus taking our judgment for us and him suffering our hell for us. That's what the fire is all about. Christ would take the judgment of God's wrath that was intended for us. And so when we see these feet like fire, that is a picture of the wrath of God against sin and how that Christ has satisfied God's wrath by taking the judgment of punishment that was against us. And then, of course, Christ declared that judgment had been given to him. We find that in John chapter 5. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. So you see these arguments. I mean, here you have it. I mean, it's no wonder that you have Bible expositors like Sice and Scott and Ironside that, that take the position that this is Christ. If you read the Reformers, uh, they're, of course, not dispensational, but they are all almost in unanimous agreement that the angel that we're speaking of here must be the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's no wonder that my dad believed it and... If you believe that, you're in great company. You're not going to fall out with me if you say, well, yes, this must be Christ because you've presented all the evidence. Well, if it is Christ, wonderful. Wonderful. If it's Christ, I'm all for that. But if it's not, if it's another mighty angel, then praise God because that angel is a representative and is a servant of Christ. He doesn't stand out here alone. Neither do we. Angels and men alike must worship Jesus Christ. And we all say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing and glory. Now, you may have think that I've thrown the rope over the tree limb, made the noose, and I've just hung myself on my opinion about, is this really an elect angel? So next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the other side of the argument and why I don't think that we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do believe this is a holy elect angel, and a very special one, and one that I think that you'll be interested in as we look at who he is in next week's lesson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight. Lord, as we look at these different scriptures, and if this is Jesus Christ, then praise God, praise the Lord, because it's a wonderful description of him. It, it fits... It looks like him, and we worship and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to reach an understanding of your word. And Lord, as we look into these things, may we have our hearts open, our minds open to receive truth. And Lord, we know that you'll, you'll bless us as we go through the book of Revelation, as we continue to see these pictures of Christ, the pictures of angels, and the mighty conflict that is about to come. Bless as we... Have fellowship tonight. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.